walking with Jesus, serving with love, sharing with courage. Welcome to the PCOM Podcast. This is Dan Van Voris back on the PCOM podcast. It has been fun this fall going back and forth with Jeff Given uh, as he has been doing talks and those uh, great interviews. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry that he he cursed himself by by saying he would accept losing. And then his uh, his Eagles, who had a perfect record, went out and uh, and lost right after that. So condolences there. Um, next week, next week on the PCOM podcast, Pastor Courtney is back. So the Ellis sabbatical is coming uh, to a close. We can, we can pray for them that they would have uh, a nice, easy transition back into uh, church life. And I know we're all excited to, uh, to have them back, but they're not coming back next, this coming weekend. Um, they still had to get a a guest preacher, and they they got uh, well. They got me as the guest preacher, so I am going to be preaching at both services uh, this Sunday. Uh, I was asked before they went on sabbatical if I would pick a weekend, and I picked this coming weekend. It's the first Sunday of Advent, technically, although we've been doing Advent for uh, a couple more weeks. As a matter of fact, it's just if I can do this, the um, on my other podcast, the one I do for a, a living, the I, I was so in Advent mindset because we started Advent early that I did a whole weekend edition on the time between the Testaments, so like Malachi to Matthew, what was happening in those 400 years, and made it all about sort of first Advent, second Advent, and then realized, oh, we're not in uh, Advent yet, but, but I technically am at least spiritually because of where we are at church. Uh, but next weekend is technically the first, and we get a good apocalyptic uh, verse. We get the the one about Jesus coming back, and no one knows the hour or the time, but when it happens, two men will be walking in a field, and one disappears, and it's, uh, it's pretty wild stuff, and I thought it would be fun to get into, and it has been, as I've been reading through commentaries and the like. Uh, it's also a lot harder than I thought, so come around and uh, uh, I look forward to, to, to bringing a word to, to the church. I, I get to speak uh, at churches all the time, but at my home church, I'll, I'll admit I'm a, little, I'm a little more nervous for that one just because, you know, I can't just uh, disappear after, after if I do a bad job. Uh, I will be telling a couple stories that you may have heard if you've listened to this podcast, and uh, um, I apologize in advance. I realize I am, am like just constantly, I'm always afraid I'm going to bore people. And if I repeat something, they'll get bored. And so I try not to repeat stories, but, um, but the story I'm going to tell, I think is a good story. And this ties in to today's show. Last week I was invited, Pastor Jackson is in, in Portugal with his family. And so I was invited to do the seniors midweek study in the great room. They get together every other week and they do a a little Bible study, and I was invited to do it. And so, and I'll tell you, I had a blast. That's a really fun group. 
I tend to be at the awake service, so I don't get to meet everyone from the first service, but I got to meet a bunch of, of great, great, uh, great people from PCOM and, and hope to uh, see them around church and excited to, to preach in that first service on Sunday. And I, I put together a talk for them, and I also said, hey, what would you guys like to hear on the PCOM podcast? And this is a always an open invitation. If there's a topic you'd like me to dig into, that's fun for me to, uh, to fulfill those requests. And a couple of them said, well, why don't you do the talk you did today? So I'm not going to give the exact same talk, but I'm going to cover the same material because it was, a, it was pretty basic. It, it was a question of how did we get here? How did PCOM get, you know, how did the Protestant Reformation, how did our church, how did Presbyterians, uh, what's our story? And I've said before, one of the things I like about being a church historian is I'm really looking at our faith family tree and pointing out sort of who did what when. And so I prepared a little talk on the history of the Reformation, something that oftentimes Protestants are really familiar with and something that around the uh, Reformation Day, I always get asked to... uh, to go places and to speak and to give talks. And once again, I've got that fear of repeating myself and boring people, uh, but I like to, to change it up a little bit. So I thought uh, for our seniors, I would talk about the history of the Reformation, but in a way they probably hadn't thought about it before. And then I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I missed the application part, which you never want to miss the application part, but uh, I'm going to make sure I hit that here. So if I did uh, Advent out of order for my podcast, the Christian History Almanac, I'm going to do the Reformation out of order for this podcast. We're going to go back to late October when we tend to talk about the Reformation. And I want to talk about four things, four maybe unlikely things that were at the root of the Reformation, which of course would lead to uh, the Protestant church, the Presbyterian church, and where we are today. The four things are Mongols, rats, banks, and books. Mongols, rats, banks, books. Let's take that first one. Mongols. Think Genghis Khan. Think the steppes of Asia. Think the the Mongol horde that could really wreak havoc on just about everything. And if you're telling a story that's in the Middle Ages, there's probably some issue with the Mongols. They've got horses, archery, light artillery. They really are able to conquer and push people out of their way, especially if those people wouldn't pay tribute. And in the Middle Ages, there was a emerging empire that would not pay tribute, and so they would move to the West, and that would be the Ottomans. Right? If you've heard of the Ottoman Turks, they are moved into what is modern-day Turkey and then into Eastern Europe. And this is going to be a really big problem, at least for Western Europeans, because the Mongols are tough, but so too are these are these Ottoman Turks. And they're they're you know on the Danube, they're they're pressing westward. In 1453, a big thing happens. Constantinople, which was sort of like the next center of the Roman Empire after Rome fell in Italy. Constantinople, one of the centers of the church, 
1453, it gets taken over by the Ottoman Turks. And of course, Constantinople becomes Istanbul, and there's a, a song about that. And so around 1500, you've got the Pope, you've got kings of France and England and Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor, and they're afraid of the Turks. And they know that if they are going to put up a united front and not get run over, they're going to need all hands on deck. They cannot afford strife, internal strife. And there's a specific issue with the Germans, because as you might know the story of Martin Luther and that first part of the Reformation, that should have been just another heresy put down. A hundred years before Luther, a guy, Jan Hus, is saying similar things. People uh, are saying similar things. John Wycliffe is saying similar things with the Lollards. And the answer would be, well, you just put them down. Just put them to death and stamp out the movement. But the early Reformation isn't stamped down because if you stamp down this very popular preacher, and we'll talk about his books at the end, then you might lose your best mercenaries, your soldiers. And so there you have Mongols, uh, Genghis Khan and the like, having an effect on the Protestant Reformation because the leaders of Western Europe can't stomp it down as fast as they would in the past. Now, the Mongols, the Mongols didn't just bring, um, you know, artillery and, and, and archers, but something else came from the East to the West at this same time. It was technically a bacteria, it was Yersinia pestis, and it came on rats. It came on rats trading ships from the East into the West, and it would cause perhaps the deadliest pandemic in Western European history, the Black Plague. There are places where up to a third of a village would be wiped out. Everything is reoriented. Life is reoriented. Art is reoriented. I, I, I told the seniors about how we used to have pictures in the high Middle Ages of, of Jesus as judge right? It's a powerful judge, and he's going to come back and get us, and, and part of the Black Death changes the art, and so we start to see the proliferation of the crucifix of the suffering Jesus. The suffering Jesus starts to become more uh, applicable. And with this comes a reorientation of how we think about death. In the Christian faith, the answer, what happens when you die, is pretty stark. It's one way or the other. And, and while I, I, I confess that, I believe that, I understand why the doctrine of purgatory would pop up here. The idea that maybe when you die, maybe if you didn't have everything quite in order because you died young, because you were a baby, because you didn't quite have your life together, well, there'd be a time where you could kind of do your makeup homework and then get into heaven. The doctrine of purgatory uh, pops up with the Black Death and with uh, this, this new prevalent plague. So we've got Mongols, we've got rats. And then we've got banks. Now, this probably doesn't sound like the thing that would be uh, that would be pertinent at all. How would a, a revolution in banking change the way we thought and help lead to the Reformation? 
Well, it was around this time that we have the sort of first great banking families of Western Europe. Think the Fuggers in Germany, the Medicis in Italy, and with world trade because of exploration, we are going to need centers of credit. We are going to need people who can hold on to our money in one place while we go out to another place and have a good word saying, trust me, I'm backed by so-and-so. And so we're going to have um, these, these centers of capital, centers of wealth. And something that's really important is keeping track of that wealth. How do we know what's coming in? How do we know what's going out? This is going to lead to the proliferation of something called double-entry bookkeeping. Double-entry bookkeeping is just what your checkbook looks like, if you have a checkbook, right? The plus and the minus. What's coming in? What's going out? And so this is a, a new sort of way of thinking about uh, credit and debt. Now, how would this fuel ideas about pur purgatory and death and most importantly, perhaps, indulgences. What was an indulgence? An indulgence was something that gave you credit. And they'd been around for a long time, the Crusades. You go on a crusade, you get an indulgence. But it's during this time of the banking revolution and the Black Death that the indulgences, the idea that you can uh, sort of get credits for your debts, and then it expands and you can get credits for other people, people who have died and are in purgatory. So you have Mongols, you have rats, and you have banks, and all of these are affecting the way that Western Europeans especially are thinking about sin and death and the gospel. And of course, it's not what the New Testament teaches. Of course, not everyone has the New Testament. The primary authority is the church. But at the same time, banking revolution, black death, Ottoman Turks, comes the printing press. Gutenberg's printing press, movable type, a, a way in which you could print things cheaply and quickly. And with the proliferation of texts, what do we have? We have literacy rates going up. Liter literacy rates jumping up from the 30s into the 70s. Uh, it, it's, it's a, historians kind of will quarrel about precise numbers, but it goes from not much to kind of a lot. People are reading, people are reproducing texts. This is the Renaissance. This is Erasmus, who in 1516, just a year before Luther nails his 95 theses, puts forth the sort of newest, best version of the Bible. I think I talked about that when we were talking about Bible versions. He took Jerome's Vulgate and made a, a New Testament, uh, especially. Of course, Luther is going to make a, a German Bible, and there's all kinds of implications for people getting the text in their hands. And, and the idea of purgatory and indulgences, I, I don't want to just sort of say, oh, and then everyone realized that was, that was dumb. Because those are comforting things. Those, if, you know, if you know you can do something about your problem, that, I, I prefer that to helplessness. And so there were people, and, and I totally understand the people who were holding on to these things, but with these new books, the Reformation is going to say, no, remember, remember, it's not anything you can do but the grace 
of God. It's all about Jesus. And this is, at his best, what Luther would do. And Luther produced books at a rate never seen before by any individual. In his career, he produced 544 separate books, pamphlets, and articles. That's uh, one every three weeks. Uh, one scholar has totaled up the, the, the totals for his rivals and supporters and concluded that the top 17 pro-Luther pamphleteers produced 807 editions between 1518 and 1525. So that's 17 pro- and anti-Luther pamphleteers, 807 in a seven-year period. In that same seven-year period, Luther produced 1,465, nearly twice as much. And of course, it doesn't just stay with the Germans and with Luther, uh, but it moves into Switzerland with Zwingli and John Calvin. And it's in Calvin's Geneva where a kind of almost Protestant uh, utopia is at least attempted. And there's a, a guy from Scotland. He's uh, named John Knox, and he is going to be an exile from Scotland, and he's going to go to Geneva. He's going to pick up the Reformation. He's then going to head back to Scotland and through uh, out of St. Andrews, where I lived for a couple years, he is going to uh, bring the Reformation to Scotland, and that is the roots of the Presbyterian Church. And we can tell the story from the 1600s to our present time, another time, but I thought it might be nice to, uh, to tell you about the Mongols, rats, banks, and books. Now, the application here is not just, oh, that's a fun story. I mean, I think it is a fun story, but also... That so much of what happened uh, to lead to the Reformation happened through regular people, right? Happened through just the way the world works, through sailors and bankers and people in the army and publishers and faithful Christians doing everyday work. I think this is a good word for us, and the Reformation actually has a word for this. It's vocation, a calling, the idea that you don't have to be a monk to be spiritual. Yes, we have pastors, and yes, we have teachers of church history, but that's no more elevated a calling than the person who is, um, that is doing God's will and, and bringing about God's plan on earth, loving your neighbor. Uh, you are sort of god in, in the flesh in that sense. I think that's what history does for me sometimes, is it despiritualizes everything and says, yes, God did it, but he did it through means, through regular people, regular people being faithful in whatever they're calling. And I think that's a, a good word for all of us, that whatever we're doing, uh, we're doing it uh, for God, for our neighbor. All right, well, that's going to wrap up this week's PCOM podcast. I'm going to jump back into the books looking at Matthew 24. I uh, look forward to bringing that to you this Sunday. And then next Tuesday, Pastor Courtney will be back on the podcast and we'll get into a, a regular schedule as we head uh, towards Christmas. So with that, I'll uh, remind you what I remind you every time, that Jesus is good news. Mm -hmm.